Good morning, Awakened Church. How are you guys doing this fine morning? You guys are good? So, oh my goodness, that was uh, <laughs> a mediocre, oh, this has kind of been a good week. I had a good week. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I'm sorry, a few days ago, I uh, happened to be driving in the car with my three amazing and beautiful daughters, and something really cool happened. Um, they got a hold, so we we're driving in the van on our way for about a half hour, 45 minute drive, and uh, they're like, hey dad, do you mind if we kind of play our music on the, on the radio? And, and so they're basically going to be streaming Spotify through the van. I don't know how that works, I just know it goes into the system and comes out whatever they're playing on their phone. So I'm like, sure, that sounds great. And you know what they chose to play? They decided to play 80s music. And uh, they're like, and not just a, uh, uh, you know, any random 80s mix. We're talking about a curated mix. Like, they're like, yeah, we, so they had specific songs from Michael Jackson, the Bangles, um, and then Cyndi Lauper, and even Queen. And so it was like, all right, kids, way to go. And this isn't the first time it's ever happened, but we started listening to 80s music on our drive. And I was just, uh, and I know, I'm, uh, so I loved it. Right? This is the music I grew up on, and this is the music that I listened to when I was their age. And they're singing along, and it's just really a fantastic situation. Not that I'm promoting 80s music or anything like that, but I thought that was just a really, really cool moment. And, uh, and that's, you know, so after I, so I became a Christian at 16 years old, so it was uh, 1987, 88, 88. So it was way, way back in the day, way before many of you were born. So this is... Um, my story, and then when I became a Christian, I was, I was already a junior in high school, and then I went to college at the University of Florida, and then when I got to the University of Florida, I was introduced to this world of Christian music, and uh, I, I mean, a lot of people that you guys might or might not remember, like, but Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, and we listened to, um, oh gosh, the Newsboys, uh, DC Talk. Cademan's Call, and so I even listened to a little bit of Carmen, if you've ever heard Carmen. That was weird. I'm not too proud of that moment, but uh, anyway, listen to a bit of Carmen. But my favorite musician of all time listening, or Christian artist, was Rich Mullins, and uh, I loved Rich Mullins. I loved his music. I loved the passion and the heart. Uh, for those of you who are younger, he's the one who wrote Amazing God, Our God is, oh, sorry, Our God is an Awesome God, and uh, Sing Your Praise to the Lord, which is an old, old one. But... Um, my, uh, we had a chance to actually, uh, I've only been to four concerts in my life. I don't go to concerts. I'm not a big audiophile. I mean, today I don't even listen to music most of the time unless my family's in the car, and I just listen to talk radio, but I've, uh, one of my concerts was Rich Mullins, and what was really cool was that we showed up. There's a few of us who showed up at the conference, so actually there's a picture I'll show you of it. Just don't make fun of me. So this is, uh, I know. I know, this is me way back, this is uh, 1995, and, um, and I, we got a chance to meet Rich Mullins before the concert actually started, so he's the one next to me in case you didn't recognize him, and uh, we were talking to him, and he was so personable, and as we finished up, we took a picture, and as we wrapped up, I actually said, hey, we're part of this student group on campus called Gator Christian Life here in Gainesville, is it okay if I just give you one of our Gator Christian Life t-shirts just to have as a souvenir? And you know what he did? He's like, sure, I'll take it. And he put it on over his shirt, and he did the concert with our Gator Christian Life t-shirt on. That was really amazing. Uh, if you haven't heard of Rich Mullins before, it's no surprise, because uh, he was killed in a car accident in 1997. So uh, it, it was tragic. And he's one of, not just a great musician, but one of the best men uh, as well. And uh, I, I'll tell you his story more as we go through this series, but one of my favorite songs by him was a song entitled Creed, 
And when I memorized the song, and just because just you just you know that's how you do it, you just sing a song. I didn't even realize it was built on the idea of the Apostles' Creed. I just had no connection. I just thought, oh, these are some really cool lyrics. They articulate faith so well. And I just sang the song, and I ended up memorizing the song. And we're gonna share that with you next week before service starts. If you guys ever, if you guys have a chance to get in here a bit earlier, and I'll play you some Rich Mullins. And uh, it'll be a little bit relevant for you, hopefully, as well, because we're going to do something similar. We're going to take the time over this course of this series to actually memorize a creed. And maybe listen to Rich Mullins will help you kind of figure out a way to do that meaningfully. So that takes us into our current, our newest series, da-da-da-da-da, creeds, right? And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the word and what the idea of creed is, is the definition of creed is it's a formalized set of beliefs. It's a formalized confession of faith. Um, it's not unique. The Bible has a number of different uh, passages that could be identified or would be identified as, as creeds. Uh, the Old Testament has one that uh, almost every Israelite memorized, even from a young age. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.4, and many of our churches still proclaim it today, right? Hear, O Israel. The Lord thy God is one. That is, that was their creed. And it was a formalized confession of faith. This is what we believe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord the God is one. And then there's uh, another one found in Romans uh, chapter 10 that many of us are familiar with if we've been trained to share the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with the heart that a person believes and is with the mouth that he confesses, resulting in salvation. So that's also another example of a creed, something that we memorize, something that gives us an affirmation of our faith. So those are examples of what creeds might look like, words put together in such a way that it conveys a load of spiritual truth. Well, in the early days of the church, part of the challenge of being a Christian is that everyone didn't have a Bible like we do today. The printing press wasn't even invented. And so the ways you got copies of the scriptures was if they were handwritten on, on papyrus, rolled into scrolls. So it was expensive to do, it was difficult, um, and, and it was handwritten, and so it was rare. And so unless you were a, a priest or unless you had, uh, was someone of wealth, you probably didn't have one. And, of course, uh, even though they were taught in, during the times when they gathered, taught different scriptures, it's not like the Bible had this has its doctrines put together in a concise, organized fashion. And so what key religious leaders did to be able to give their people an idea of what the key doctrines and beliefs of the scriptures were, they developed what's called creeds, right? simplified, concise ways of being able to define what we believe. That's what a creed was. And it's designed to be given, so it would be memorized. And then after it's memorized, we might not even know fully what it means, but we memorize the words, and then during our gatherings, it gets expounded upon and fleshed out. The earliest of these Christian creeds was actually called the Apostles' Creed, which is a bit tricky as a name because it wasn't actually written by the apostles, even though there's a legend going around that in the 12 lines, each of the apostles penned one of the 12 lines. That's not probably not true, but that was kind of the legend. But it was written uh, very early, somewhere around 120 to 140 AD. So this is really early in the game. 
And the creed was, again, written in such a way and offered and taught in such a way that both children and adults could understand and memorize. And it was written to fulfill two key purposes, to clearly define what we believe and then in so doing, refute false beliefs. That was the design of the creed because there was a lot of different teachers, a lot of different teachings going on, and the key apostles and leaders of the church wanted to make sure that our people know what these key beliefs are and in knowing them, be able to refute false teachings. Those two simple reasons are why we're going to be tackling creed over the course of the next however many weeks in this church, right? This is the series that we're going through, but it is different today, and we have to acknowledge that. We do all have Bibles. Most of us, most of America has a Bible in their home in some way, shape, or form. The problem isn't that we don't have God's Word. The problem is we don't read it, and so we might as well not even have them for us. So, and the things that we we believe about God, the things about, that we believe about Jesus, the things that we believe about the Holy Spirit, if we're not reading the Bible, then what we're doing is we're pulling together ideas that we're being taught, ideas that we're hearing, and we're weaving it together, all these ideas from all these different sources, and trying to have a coherent sense of what biblical doctrine is, and it can just really start getting confusing. And what we want to do over the course of this series is return and just say, look, Sometimes this idea of doctrines and beliefs can be a bit complicated, but it's essential and necessary, and the apostles and church leaders in the early days figured out a way to be able to communicate it simply and clearly to their people, and there's no reason why we can't do the same today. It takes no skill or brilliance to make things simple more complicated. What is challenging, what does take brilliance, is be able to take things that are complex and be able to digest them in a way that's simple, easy to understand, easy to know. And that's what these early church leaders did, and that's what we're going to take advantage of during the course of the next seven, eight weeks or so in our church. And I'm going to be honest with you, there have been some conversations that I've had with some of you guys that, that kind of has me concerned as well. And not just people in our church, but even people who've kind of shown up and people that we've had the conver- opportunity to have conversations with that get me a little bit worried sometimes that some of the things that are said, some of the things that are thought, that maybe we assume things are biblically true that really aren't biblically true. We just heard that they were from the media, from some other teacher, or even maybe even from here that was just not quite right. And so that also is driving our heart for wanting to take the time to walk through this patiently and thoroughly as we as thoroughly as we can. So enough of preamble. The only other thing I'll say before we dive in is this is an Awaken Q&A series, which if you're newer to our church and you don't know what Awaken Q&A is, it's basically we want to have the time where as the saints you're interacting with me and with the teacher. And so if during the course of the teaching you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, I want you to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. It's going to be at the top of every slide. And at the end of our time, we'll tackle as many of those as we're going to have time to do. Okay? We're good? So let's dive in. And, And before we actually dive into specifically the topic we're going to go through today, I actually want to read through the entire Apostles' Creed for you all, and so that you guys get familiar with the, the form of it. Now, we're not going to codify this in our church. There's no, nothing low to mind. This is just a simple way that we wanted to be able to walk through the key doctrines of the church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, 
was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That's the Apostles' Creed. I don't want you guys to get thrown off by some of the wording in there. I know there are going to be a lot of questions like, wait, Jesus descended into hell? Wait, are we a Catholic church? Wait, are we? We'll get to them over the course of our series. And some of these things no, don't necessarily mean what you think it means, right? What is that, Princess Bride? I do not think that means what you think it means. So be patient. We will get to it. This week, we're going to start from the very beginning. And the first part of the creed, I believe... In God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So I want to start off by all of us saying this together, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All right, so repeat after me, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We're going to do it again. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Good. We're going to break this passage or this idea down into three parts. And we're going to start with the words, I believe. I believe. That is the challenge of this whole thing, isn't it? What do you believe? Do you really know? As I shared earlier, most Americans today, we're content with being spoon-fed what we believe. We mix and match what we find on the internet, what we hear from our friends, what we see in our news feeds. We add that to the foundation that was laid by our parents and, and maybe for those of us who went to church as kids, our church and, and the Bible and the things we've read and learned. And we toss that in with things we learned at school and things we learned from teachers that we respected. And we add in a little bit of science. We add in the things that really kind of make sense to us. And that's how it all comes together. It's like this, this spiritual goulash. It's this uh, uh, casserole, mixed casserole of all these different ideas from all these different sources that somehow come together and form our beliefs. And maybe it doesn't really make sense if, if we kind of piece it all together and try to answer and talk about it objectively, but it makes sense to us. And that tends to be what our belief system becomes defined as. Right? I believe. And this is where, these are the words that the Apostle Creed begins with. And I love that it begins with these two simple and yet profound words. Because there's a load behind even these two simple words. And when I say simple and yet profound, here's what I mean. The Apostle's Creed is written as a personal declaration, right? I believe a personal declaration, but it's intended to reflect beliefs that we corporately believe. A personal declaration to something we corporately believe as the true church. It's a communal commitment that we make individually. And maybe that sounds kind of weird. It's like, wait, why would I personalize a commitment of, of something we are? Why wouldn't we just say we believe? And the, the, the easiest way for us to understand it is maybe to think about the Pledge of Allegiance. You guys are all familiar, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag, the United States of America. But have you ever thought how weird it is that we're saying, I pledge, even though we all stand up together as a class and make this pledge 
together. It's the same idea, a communal commitment to something greater than us that we make individually. That's what this creed is. It's a personal commitment saying, I will be committed to this shared set of values that we hold in something bigger, far bigger than us. That is what these words convey when it's talking about the idea of I believe. Second, in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. There's a lot of meaning packed into these five words, in the and God, the Father Almighty. So instead of packing it all, I'm going to start with two of them. We're going to start with talking about God Almighty. What does it mean when we talk about this idea of God Almighty? There's four key ideas, four qualities that comprise this idea of God Almighty. When we say God Almighty, we mean that he is a God with these four qualities. The first is that God is omnipotent. And that big word basically means that God has no limits on his ability to do whatever he wants. We have limits. We may want to do a lot of things, but we simply cannot because we have limitations on time, availability, uh, talent, whatever the case may be. We are not omnipotent. God is omnipotent. There is nothing that his mind will conceive of that he cannot accomplish if he wills to do so. There's nothing that God does not exert power over. God is all-powerful. That is what it means when we say God is omnipotent. In the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, he shares, For I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. In the book of Ephesians, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. So the first key idea when we talk about God Almighty is that he is all powerful, he is omnipotent. The second idea is that God is omniscient. Omniscient. And we, what the word omniscient means is there's nothing that God does not know. There's nothing in the past, there's nothing in the present, and there's nothing in the future that God is unaware of. Nothing that will cause God to say, whoa, that took me by surprise. I didn't realize that was going to happen. That is not going to be any part of God's reality. His awareness and his understanding is infinite. In Psalm 139, oh Lord, you've examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful, too great for me to understand. In 1 John, says, our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. So God is all-powerful, omnipotent. God knows everything. He's omniscient. Third, he's what's called omnipresent. And that idea of omnipresent is he is present everywhere at once. There is no place that is separated from God's presence. Nowhere you can go to escape from him. Psalm 139 again. 
I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me, your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. So God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present everywhere. There's no place where you can separate yourself from God. And finally, God is omnibenevolent, which means that God is absolutely good. God does not have a single thought, a single motivation, a single feeling, a single action that is not good. God is always good in all of these things. And there is no one, as my daughter would say, no one gooder than God. Right? That's what omnibenevolence means. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. James 1, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So that's what it means when we talk about God Almighty. He's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere, and he is completely good in all he thinks, all he does, all he feels. And yet, so this is where we begin. In other words, the apostles are saying, this is what we declare. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And the reason for that declaration is there are going to be people in the world who challenge that idea. There's going to be people in the world that say, is God really all-powerful? If he is, then why can't he create a four-sided triangle or create a stone that he cannot lift, right? Which is a weird piece of logic. Is God really all-knowing? Because if God really is all-knowing, then why did Jesus ask questions during the course of his ministry? And does he really know what sin feels like? Is God really omnipresent? If that's true, if God really is everywhere, does that mean God's in hell? Does he know? Is he right there with the devil and Satan in hell? Because I thought hell was defined as a place separated from God's presence. And finally, is God really always good? Because if he is, then how can there be evil in the world? That just doesn't seem to make sense. On and on. You see these? These are all questions I'm sure maybe you've asked or other people around you have asked. But why the asking is because they're challenging this idea that God is almighty. The world will always question and challenge. They do today. They did even in the days of Jesus, even in the days of the Old Testament. They did in the days of the early church, and that is one of the reasons why these church leaders came together under the wisdom of God, under the inspiration of the scriptures to define their core belief in the form of this creed. But here's the essential truth that we need to know. Right? God is God regardless of what you believe. In other words, if you choose not to believe in God or anyone else chooses not to believe in God, it's not like all of a sudden God's like, I'm melting. I'm, you know, God doesn't all of a sudden disappear because you don't believe in him. God is there whether we believe in him or not. God's nature does not change based on whether we believe in him or not. Our belief in him defines our place, our relationship with God, and our identity, not his. That's what it means to be God Almighty. But wait, the Apostles' Creed actually doesn't say, I believe in God Almighty. What does it say? It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. 
So there's one more thing, one more detail I want to address before we move on from this. And that is this idea that God is our Father. And I want to separate this because I want to be clear that there's this distinction that is made in this statement. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Because I think what is communicated in that idea of God is our Father is that our beliefs are not merely theological, but it's also relational. Our belief in God isn't simply some lines we believe on a page about a being we can't really see and touch. It's also relational. They got, that God has chosen to be in relationship to us and with us. In 1 Corinthians 8, it says, But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. You know, I want to be clear because the world kind of distorts this one as well. When it talks about this idea of God as the Father, there's no gender issue tied to it. God is, God is spirit. God is bigger than we are. God's not going to be trapped into whether he's male or female. God is beyond all of that. The implication when it talks about God the Father has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with the nature of his relationship with us. In other words, God the Father means that I am affectionate. I'm intimate with you but I also have authority over you too. And that's not authority like in a domineering way. I have authority over my children, but I don't exercise it in a domineering way because I love them. I exercise that lovingly in relationship. Does that make sense? It's to, the, the idea of God the Father is to convey the nature of our relationship, not gender. And so if God is our Father, then that, what that means for us, the implications, is that we are part of his family. We are his kids. And more than that, if we understand that God is king, then that means we are heirs to an eternal inheritance. We are heirs to his kingdom. So that means you're not simply the children of God. You are all princes and princesses of God's kingdom. And that means that for us, our relationship with God is going to be twofold. He is not only going to be our king, who has the right to tell us what, how we are to live our lives, but he's also our father. He is both king and father, both king and daddy. I believe in God the Father Almighty. The third part is maker of heaven and earth. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is literally the first verse in the Bible. This is literally the first thing God says about himself. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I will tell you that even though that is the case, even though that's true, and the reason why these early fathers wrote this down and had, had the God's people memorize that is because this is one of the most challenged areas in Christian faith. The idea that God the Father, there are more people who can accept that God exists than are willing to accept that God created the heavens and the earth. They simply don't want to believe that God is the creator of this world and universe that we live in. The world would rather believe a theory based on randomness, chance, and impossible odds than accept the fact that God might have created all things. Why? You ever thought why this area is so challenged? Why this has become such a battleground issue? 
It's because the world recognizes something that many Christians do not. The world realizes that there are implications, things that are natural consequences, things that we must believe. If, if we're to believe A, then we must also believe B, C, D, and E. Does that make sense? They get it. We just kind of like, I don't understand why there's so much controversy over this. It's because the world understands the implications of whether or not if God has created all things. I'll give an ex- a number of examples. If we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then what that also means is that God rules over all of creation, including mankind. And the world doesn't want to accept that. The world doesn't want to accept the idea that God has authority over how I live my life. I don't want that. Secondly, if God, if we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then morality and ethics are determined by God and woven into the fabric of creation. And what that means is if God really made all things, then that means he made all things to reflect his desire, his heart, his passions. He put laws into place for our good, for his good, right? The world doesn't want to accept that. So they don't want to talk about God creating things. They'd rather talk about natural laws or laws of physics rather than saying they're God's laws put in place for us. And the reason why is if we do that, if we can attribute these laws and call them natural instead of God-given, then the other laws we might be able to twist and make a bit more malleable, kind of like laws about morality and what is good and what is evil. If God created the heavens and the earth, that means that God created society and life to function in a certain way. And the world says, I don't want God to dictate how I live my life and how society is going to work for me. I don't want God to determine who gets to be male and who gets to be female. I don't want God to determine how marriage looks and how sexuality is supposed to look. I don't want God to determine how work and government is supposed to look like. God, the world does not want God to dictate these things, and so they deny his creating, him as creator. And finally, if God is creator of heavens and earth, then God places the responsibility of sin on us. That's part of God's story, is it not? That God created the heavens and the earth, and he created us good and perfect. And the reason why we live in a fallen world today is because we have sinned, because we fall short, and we brought all of this damage to the world and to the universe, right? That is the story of God in the scriptures, and the world doesn't want to accept that. The world doesn't want to accept the fact that we have made mistakes, and we've made the world a wicked place, and yet we would rather blame God instead. Even if we don't believe in God, we'd rather blame him and say, it's God's fault things are so bad, and so God must be evil, God must be wicked, or God must be weak, or God must be impotent, or there's something about God that causes, or unjust, or unrighteous, and that's why we suffer today but certainly not our fault. These are the implications of what it means when you separate God from the idea of God being our creator. So as a family, we kind of got into Harry Potter. And I know some of you guys don't believe in Harry Potterness. It's witchcraft and all that stuff. And I respect your, I respect your beliefs. I respect your opinion. I, I just don't necessarily share them. So if that's okay. Um, as a family, uh, we're pretty good about distinguishing between fantasy and reality. And Harry Potter is definitely in that fantasy category, right? So we've read, a number of us read the books. I, I read all the books a number of years ago. My daughters are reading and rereading the books right now, and uh, I don't want to dive in too deeply, but one of the things that always bothered me 
about the Harry Potter series, and maybe some of you be like, yeah, that bothered me too. So it's this idea of at Hogwarts, right? Hogwarts, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with Harry Potter, that's the school that the kids go to. So Harry Potter and the kids go to the school called Hogwarts. And when you first show up at Hogwarts as a student, and you're usually about 11 or 12 years old, you're going to spend seven years of school at Hogwarts. But when you first show up at the school for the very first time, what happens? You go into this huge gathering, and you have to move up front and have this thing called the sorting hat put on your head that determines what school, what house you're going to belong to, and you'll belong to one of the four houses in Hogwarts, and that's where you're going to spend the next seven years. And so this hat gets put on your head. It goes, hmm, I think you belong to Gryffindor, right? And then you go and you sit with that house, and that's kind of how Hogwarts is designed to be. And, and then the schools all have different areas of focus. So Gryffindor is the school that values bravery and chivalry. Hufflepuff is the school that values, or the, the house that values hard work, loyalty, and fairness. Ravenclaw is the house that values intelligence and wit. And Slytherin is the house that values ambition and resourcefulness. And so in those, the first time you show up at the school, in a matter of seconds, what gets determined is the house that you belong to and Based on the house that you belong to, it's now going to make that decision for the rest of your seven years. That three to five seconds, that three to five second decision determined by some mystical hat will determine where you live, where you will sleep, where you will eat, who your friends are going to be, and who your leaders are going to be for the next seven years. Decided for you without you ever having a say in it. I know for those of you who read book seven, Harry says you have a little bit of say in it. But I'm just saying that idea, right? The first time, you don't even get like a year to warm up. The first time you show up, you put on this sorting hat, this mystical, mysterious little hat. It decides what house you go into. And based on whatever house you go into, where you live, where you sleep, where you eat, who your friends are, who your leaders are, are already decided for you. And that always frustrated me. I always thought that that's really unfair. That doesn't seem right. And if you can empathize with that feeling or you thought, ah, I thought the same thing. Frank, way to go, you know? Then you can understand now how the world feels when you present this idea that there is this mystical God who's created all things, created all the heavens and the earth. And now as a result of that, certain things must be true. And that resistance, and, and for people to think that happened and I had no say in it, I don't like it. And if you can empathize and understand that feeling, then you can understand why the world is in rebellion to God, why this is a battleground issue, and why people simply resist God because they don't want to be told how to live their lives. I believe. In God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So in a few moments, I want to tackle some awakened Q&A. I know there's a lot of stuff loaded into this teaching. So if you have any questions or comments or thoughts, feel free to text them to awakenedqna at gmail.com. And we'll tackle as many as we can. And while you're doing that, I want to close out this time. I think it's most appropriate we close out this time with the word of God. And so I'm going to read this extended passage found in the book of Isaiah, where God writes it to give hope to a people who are struggling with their faith in the midst of oppression. 
And when I say oppression, I don't mean they're having a lot of trials and difficulty. I mean that the world around them is telling them that you are fools, that you are weak, and they're telling them lies about their lives. And God speaks to them in the midst of this oppression, in the midst of their exile, and says, I want to speak these words to remind you of who I am and to give you hope. And I wanted to share them with you as well, because I think that that's a very similar place that we can oftentimes be in today. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 to 28. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Isn't it clear that God created the world? God is the one who rules the whole earth, and we who live here are merely insects. He spread out the heavens like a curtain or an open tent. God brings down rulers and turns them into nothing. They're like flowers freshly sprung up and starting to grow. But when God blows on them, they'll be carried off like straw in a storm. The holy God asks, who compares with me? Is anyone my equal? Look at the evening sky. Who created the stars? Who gave them each a name? Who leads them like an army? The Lord is so powerful that none of the stars are ever missing. You people of Israel say God pays no attention to us. He doesn't care if we're treated unjustly. But how can you say that? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the eternal God, creator of the earth. He never gets weary or tired, and his wisdom cannot be measured. Amen? Amen. 